Stephanie Regan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited and looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Connor. I'm kind of happy to be here and um, interested to see where this conversation goes. Um, where are you from, Stephanie? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Dublin, Ireland. And um, actually, yeah, just in a family sense, I suppose, um, youngest of 13, seven brothers, five sisters. Uh, so quite a little... Um, you know, I suppose quite a lot of experience in the family relationships scenario. So maybe that's what got me going in this whole area. But uh, yeah, big family situation. Uh, how would you describe your childhood? I would say, um, I would say very much kind of a lot of joy and happiness in my childhood. And I think that comes from the big family side of things. Um, I also would have experienced being the child of an alcoholic. So I've, I think I've learned a lot in that. Um, and obviously, you know, some things like that, I often think were prompts maybe that moved me towards psychotherapy in understanding my own story. Yeah. So would you say the family dynamic was the inspiration for your journey into psychotherapy? Was it? Uh... Yeah, I, I suppose. I think what I mentioned there about, you know, alcoholism and maybe trying to understand that in the growing up years, I would also say I had one brother who had a breakdown in college. And I think that would be another big motivator mm. where you find yourself and he was just one year older than me and where you find yourself trying to understand or being, you know, suddenly interfacing with with the things that you have no answer for. And I think that was probably it, you know, because because I went I, at first I did um, psych, not psychology. Sorry, I did economics and maths in college mm. and actually I qualified in that. And um, but really, I was never, you know, so I have quite a rational side, obviously, quite a good rational side. Um, mm. But I was really more drawn to the softer skills and the softer side of things and understanding. And I think that's that there's my motivation, I think. Yeah. Stephanie, how important is sex in a long term relationship? Well, I think it's um, it's essential, but um, it changes over time. I think we have to, you know, absolutely see that as the trajectory of that. Um, I mean, sex is what sex is what makes it completely different to friendship, isn't that it? If we want to just be simple about it, mm. we all have good friends, best friends, but the difference with a partner or a mate or your husband or wife or whoever you've completely locked down with is that. There is an attraction. You are mates. You are you. You physically comfort each other as well as all the other elements. I don't think sex. I think sex has something very very strong at the beginning, and it becomes something more different over time. I I see it as something very comforting, very soothing, very supporting, very exciting. It has all these dimensions to it, but all those dimensions are different at different times and for different people. And, you know, people, obviously, the drive for sex is quite different as well in terms of the origin and your early sexualizations. Those things are really important. So there's so much to say in one sentence there. We'll just uh, start. Brilliant. In terms of a clinical setting, when, when people present you, you work a lot with couples and yeah. individuals. What are the most common issues relating to sex that you find between couples in, in say, long-term relationships or marriages? I would say that I, I sometimes think that people people see it as something very instinctive that continues. Whereas mm. I, I suppose, if I'm honest, I think that's one of the problems that, that the intensity, which is, let's be honest, intoxicating, gorgeous intensity that, you know, if you're lucky, we all get at the beginning of relationships, you know, where everything is right, everything works. 
everything is lovely. You're seeing everything in a great way. You're seeing each other in a lovely way. And mm. I mean, that is the falling in love stage and it's fantastic. And it does last, you know, with couples, it lasts for quite a long time. And for some, it lasts instinctively. But really, the instinctive thing is that they're doing the right things to keep it going. They're creating space for each other. They're creating time. They're also not merged. You know, a big problem in relationships is if you become so close that you're so together that there is no distance for the desire or the fancy or the, you know, there's got to be something there. You know, Mm. it's not just wash the dishes, is it? Put them all Mm. in the press and go off and have, you know, fabulous sex. I mean, you've got to be highly motivated for that. You need little bit around it and I think good good couples sort of instinctively know that you know they create the night they don't do anything extraordinary but they create the time for each other and they want to be together they want to hear each other and they want to go and enjoy things together and you know the time that you know if you're a part in a partnership and it's 10 years or 15 years and all that fabulous you know wild hormones have, have settled down the time that people find each other most attractive is when they see their partner at a distance doing something that they are very involved in, like immersed in. And I think if every one of us reflect, we know that when you when you're at a party and you look across and you think, yeah, he's handsomer than I thought. You know, I've kind of forgotten about that. It's kind of an interesting thing Mm -hmm. um, because you're you're sort of getting a glimpse of the girl or the guy that you you were sort of moved towards in the first place. So I just think that's interesting. So you have to create it. I think that's why some couples really get it right. So familiarity and constant companionship can be wonderful, but it can also be detrimental sexually. Yes, I think so. Yes, it can be. You have to, you have to, you have to make absolute steps. I I think you have to stop, stop thinking it all just keeps happening. Mm. You must remember that the reason it happened at the beginning was because you didn't know her. Mm. You didn't know him, Mystery. whichever it is. You were reaching out to know more about this person. Mm. And and it was in that gap and reaching out that the attraction was completely there. And and as you get to know everything, and let's be honest, as you get to know the bad things mm. um, and the bad sides, you know, and the things that annoy us and drive us crazy, mm. um, it's quite easy to get that feeling that you kind of know this person inside out. So we have to continue to create a little distance because desire is in that slight distance. Yeah. Distance and, and mystery um, yes. will, will foster it. Um, do you find couples, um, when they present that sex has become completely absent in their lives? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, not so often funny, you know, mm. mostly because I'm not a sex therapist in that sense. I'm a psychotherapist. So so people who have functional problems with sex, you know, um, you know, what this person is not receptive, they're, they're, you know, they're finding things, you know, are sore, they're difficult, you know, they're having real sort of functional issues, as I say, I would, you know, I would often refer people to a sex therapist who's good on technique, good on, you know, all of the, obviously, I would know some of them myself that I've learned over time in the work, but, and I can mention some things like that. But usually the problems that people present with around sex are much more that sex has been stopped because or sex has been shut down in many ways because the the connection is gone, the communication is gone, the softness towards each other is gone. That's something I really notice people let go of. And I think sex goes out the door with it is softness, Mm. you know, where um, they become hard to each other. Couples can make that mistake, men and women, that they think they can say hard things to each other. 
they can't. You can do it. You'll get away with it. But it's never forgotten, I think, in the intimacy of relationship. I think you're it's like it's like shaving off a layer. You know, it's a it's a it's a gentle structure. And if you want if you want your partner to feel, you know, really at home with you and really excited with you at the same time, it's got to be a very safe, free space. And I think that any these sort of harsh criticisms greatly damage that. I think that's a, that's a great lesson there. Be mindful of really harsh criticisms um, in the moment and maybe a little bit of self-censorship every now oh, and again. Even a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that um, goes for women and men. Yeah. You know. Um, okay, so you have a brilliant podcast called Tough Love. And in one of the episodes, you mentioned there was a study done by Victoria Milan, the dating agency, and they yeah. were tracking reported orgasms right yes across europe mm -hmm. they tracked the number of orgasms women reported having every week and they found that number one was belgium yes 13.86 two was france at 11.34 and ireland at 10.6 orgasms women were reporting per week mm -hmm. that might be surprising to some what's your perspective yeah. on those numbers yeah, it is kind of uh, surprising. And of course, we don't have, I don't have the backup. I have to be honest, the backup, re, you know, sort of um, groupings and, you know, sample ages, sizes. you know, lots of, re exactly sample size, lots of research can be, I think of them more like surveys than, you know, mm. research. And in some respects, the, the sample sizes, you know, determines an awful lot. But still, you can get a snippet and you're getting a snapshot and it's no harm to think about that. So in terms of orgasms and Irish women, I would say, um, I think that Irish women, I, I wouldn't be surprised that on average, there's, uh, they're very satisfied in that, in, in a sexual sense. I think, um, I think in the older age groups where, when there was a lot of oppression around sex, mm. um, and in many ways, I always think of that as just about 10 years before me. It's kind of funny. I, I even see it in a group, you know, in groupings, because obviously, again, I'm at the youngest end of the family, and I don't mean it like, you know, sisters, brothers, but there was a very big difference in 10 years. Mm. It was almost like when, when, you know, contraceptives came into Ireland, when, when, you know, sexuality became something you could completely own and speak about, where people could, people could go out and have sex with someone. And it wasn't, you know, you wouldn't tell everyone about it because it's a private world, but people weren't judging each other. So there was, you know, it's big, big change. And I think that you know, so from that grouping downwards, anyone now in their 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, they see sex as a normal part of life, a normal part of connecting. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's much more. Sometimes it's just for me. Sometimes it's just for you. Sometimes it's sometimes for both. And and we're all OK with that as long as everybody is safe and feeling OK in that. So I think I, I think in that world, I expect orgasms to be more normal much more normal for Irish women yeah um there was another uh, the, the chemical oxytocin came yes represent. okay so what is oxytocin and why does it affect women more so than men yes it, I think it, things affect men differently yes so well oxytocin is um the um the chemical that drops when women breastfeed, for example. Mm -hmm. I always think that's the best way to think of it. And as somebody who has done so, I can tell you that the only way I could describe it is it's almost like that feeling of overall calm 
uh, it gives you a feeling of almost like that sense you might have if you've had a half of a pre-med where you kind of you you just feel very calm very uh, warm to the world and so it has this glow um and the idea is very simply that um oxytocin is what what rises when we um begin to fall in love and touch brings it in obviously breastfeeding brings it in but touch brings it in mostly and uh, once that once oxytocin is present your view of the person in front of you is quite rosy quite different and and quite good obviously um and it does also affect men this is mm. very well shown that touch and we leave sex aside mm. touch hugging just the physicality and the comfort of that brings oxytocin to the to the fore in both of us and what it does also which i think is really interesting is it makes me you know that glowy that glowy feel that we talk about mm. that people are more forgiving couples are more forgiving to each other in other words might have been arguing with you yesterday but if the oxytocin is up today then kind of say well maybe it's not that important it's just kind of it just takes the edge off the view and perspective and the harshness so that it brings that softness back between you that's why sex is important that's why touching is important for mm-hmm. couples over time and that's why if sex has become an issue we really still move towards and and encourage people to be tactile be fond be be gentle to be be close yeah yeah the, the, i've heard it described before as the bonding chemical so 100% it, it, it's bonding people together um yes. I think we we touched it on already, but it, it's worth going back to. So desire and attraction in a long-term relationship. Yeah. Would you say that, or would you say that distance mystery? So one thing a couple could do, for example, would be somebody goes away for two weeks. They separate mm-hmm. and come back together. They separate and come back together. Would that be a remedy for this familiarity issue? Yes. But, well, well, yes and no. I mean, it may not be practical to be doing the constant mm. yin and yang and uh, so, such a thing. I think it's more, it's a little more abstract than that. It's it's both both in the physical distance. Mm. In other words, you don't need to be ever present to each other all the time. But that can be done by, that, that can also be affected by having, creating your own life, mm. having your own interests. So you have things together and apart. Um, another thing that I think is is very good for sparking desire in, in in a couple is doing something new together, brand new, where neither of you have the skill, neither of you, you know, it may be, your, I don't know, you take up, it could be kayaking, could be, you know, a physical thing and, um, or, or just even, you know, it could be cycling, could be something less strenuous, but something, something that you're both sort of, starting in the same place um, mm. and okay so one might be stronger or one might be ever and then you have the fun of sort of learning the fun of the fun of maybe even competing a little all these things sort of spark something fresh it's the unfreshness of familiarity and I mean mm. I think instinctively everybody who listens knows that you just feel I mean is it tv and netflix all the time it's boring it's the truth isn't it do you find couples um, in relationships, they've stopped communicating when it comes to talking um, about sex, for example, and, and intimacy? Do you find a complete breakdown there? I mean, we are notorious as an Irish society for mm-hmm. having previously having difficulties in terms of communication. Yeah, that's right. It's, I mean, we don't have a great language for sex, do we? You know, mm. we're, we're not. I mean, I really think children need to be introduced. I mean, I'm completely on the Dutch 
uh, school of thought on this. You know, they bring children into school, they teach them the language of their body, they teach them the language of the yes and no. It's not just about consent. It's also about teaching them to, to kind of understand themselves and be able to say what they want sexually and otherwise. And yes, I completely think it's about the language of learning it. So I'm totally for that. In terms of adults, I think that, again, it's back to something I mentioned at the beginning, the instinctive thing. What kind of people think you should know? You know, there's a lot of this. I think you should know by now. Should you know by now? I don't get that. No, you're supposed to kind of communicate. Your, your job in the relationship is to communicate. And not just outwards, but inwards, you know, to both say it and also hear it from, you know, both sides. And I think that sometimes people just rely on in a kind of a judgmental way that we should all understand You're, you know, if we're together. You should know, you should understand you. I, I've said it before. I don't think so. I think mm. you have to have this constant ongoing communication. This, As I say, this ongoing kind of love communication where you say, you know, you where you call, where one compliments the other, where one where one um, uh, how would I say acknowledges and reconfirms and says you know, you know lets you know that was good that wasn't good, and and what was and, and what's important now because we keep changing you see so what worked before does it maybe work now so I think you're right there's a there's a slowness in it and I, I mean I find it incredibly interesting you know I do a little bit of TV work and um, radio work and. Almost every single time I go into those buildings, somebody takes me aside and says, you don't mind if I just ask you about. <laughs> and and I think it's really interesting that we're in this whole business of communication. But people don't talk about to their friends about things like that, because it's kind of the private world, isn't it? Your private relationship world. And of course, you're protecting it. And I understand that. But, you know, people don't want to, friends to know that maybe your sex life is bad or it's good, you know, it feels too demanding or whatever it is. So I do understand that. But at the same time, I think we can normalize the chit chat, you know, in a, that can be a positive chit chat. And I also think between couples, you really you've got to say more than our sex life isn't good. You've got to find you've got to way, find ways to break that down and, you know, and be willing to sort of try and work around it and try something different. And I don't mean just, we're not talking about exotic, we're not talking about the mechanics of it. We're talking about what's not good, who's not giving time, what are we not, why are we not special to each other? What's what's going on here? Yeah. Um, studies that I've looked, I've, I've heard reported online, studies from David Buss, studies from people in the evolutionary psychology space indicate that sexual variety is very important to men. And it, apparently it's significantly more important to men than it is to women. Have you yeah. encountered that in practice? Um, and what would you, what's your perspective on the, the, the issue of sexual variety in a long-term relationship, for example? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're right. We, 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 you know, I did actually read that, that, that piece of um, research and there was another aspect to it, which was what, what do men regret most? Mm. You know, if they've been in a, kind of a long-term relationship or if they had more time or if they had more opportunity what would they do they would have more variety and uh, whereas women that's not the case well I mean that's just simple evolution you know women we survived and our children survived by by honing in on one partner who would protect and mind us mm. and or a family or a unit you know whereas for men for their for their genes if you like to continue successfully well, the more women 
they impregnated, the more likely their gene pool was going to survive. So I think it's a very, you know, it's very evolutionary in that sense. I, but I think that it's, it's, of course, we've moved into the monogamous space, but it is kind of interesting that that is changing again. And I think it is changing again. I mean, it's changing, you could say, is it because we're living longer? Is it because marriages now are much longer? And 50% of marriages in the Western world, not necessarily in Ireland, but in general and in, in the States, and we tend to follow that model gradually over time, it's 50% of marriages break. Mm. So I think we have to ready ourselves for that reality. That's, and I think I think there is something changing. Um, I don't think I don't think it's actually clear exactly what's changing yet. But I I don't think it's that men are rushing back to the variety factor, if you like. I don't think it's that. Mm. I think it is myself that people people recognise the challenge of marriage, and uh, over time, maybe in order to let those marriages survive, maybe some people are moving towards the variety. There may mm. be an aspect. Of, I see that quite little, certainly okay. in Ireland. I see that very little. It does happen, but it's fairly little, for, fairly small in numbers. Um, now, I'm not the complete barometer on that, but I suppose I'm getting as much exposure to it as any probably any other clinician around. Um, I think that I think there is something changing though also in younger people. I was speaking to someone um, in Germany, and and they were saying people are young people are less interested in marriage. Now, in Ireland, they're very in the marriage space still. That could be our religious sort of and traditional kind of hangover time, so to speak. But, you know, when you speak to people in Europe and younger people, young professionals in Europe, they're looking more for partners that um, maybe for a period of time. You know, they're they're not they're not racing for marriage. They're looking for partnership they're maybe not also racing towards children. And so the, the issue of children is way down the line. And um, I think that's kind of interesting. Marriage is getting deferred and deferred and deferred. Now, we know it's got a little deferred here and the average age here mm. is more like 36 for guys, 34 for girls. But I think just the and marriage rates in Ireland are still quite good. You know, they're still quite high. Mm. But in other countries, um, that's I think there's a slightly different dynamic happening. Do you think there's a, a, an option for kind of a tiered pricing when it comes to marriage? And what I mean by in terms of longevity, so you say you have a lifelong marriage, mm -hmm. a 15-year marriage, you have a five-year marriage. And at the end of that time period, you can choose to renew or not. What's your, what's your thought on that one? Well, it's the seven-year itch thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, well, might, there's a lot there's a lot of divorce, that. like it might inhibit these catastrophic yes. divorces yes that there would be like a tiered almost commitment yeah is that what you're saying yeah mm -hmm. in some respects i mean the complexity of you see the family system has served society very well if you think mm. of it that way it has served as well because it is um you know it is it, it, it is it allows for connection it allows for bonding it allows for stability security um, I think it also it also provides for um, an, an sort of a, an interconnectedness in terms of responsibility, ownership, all of those things. So so there's a lot to be lost when you break up the system. But I think, mm. as you say, right, the system can be reformed. You know, I'm not a sociologist in that sense. And I think um, I think they have a lot to say on that. And I think it, it, it I mean, but I, I really think there's something shifting. I mm. can feel it in my work. I can feel it in the, the problems that come up. 
the encounters that women are having, that men are having, something is changing. And yet now in Ireland, because I am an Irish based therapist, there is definitely still a huge grow, as we would put it, for the marriage route, for sure. And I don't think that's going to change in Ireland, probably for another, we're probably in that 40, 50 years. You know, it's going to take that time. It's a generational thing, I think, for, for that to shift and become less, less the norm. Mm. Presently, it's still the absolute norm. Um, in your experience and in terms of uh, your, your clinical practice, I, I just wanted, I was curious about this question. Um, can relationships recover from infidelity? I wanted to get your yes. perspective. Yeah, well, infidelity. Um, infidelity is almost always a destroyer, mm. I think, in relationships. Particularly, I suppose there's a timing factor. Mm. You know, it probably has a greater sort of destructive quality at the beginning than it does a little later, although also has the power to destroy it. Um, it also depends why it happened, how it happened. Um, you know, was it a one night stand? Was it with drink? Was it opportunistic? Mm. Um, was it, you know, was it was it uh, unintended or was it, you know, did it involve lying over six months, two years? And was there love? You know, was it a love affair? Infidelity, you know, we like to think of infidelity as somebody cheating on somebody and somebody is bad and somebody isn't. And I see infidelity in a bigger framework. And I, I see it as I see it as somebody finding themselves maybe just with opportunity and, and maybe just being weak in the moment. Fine. Somebody maybe maybe having drink and being and and and, and falling, you know, falling mm. into the moment. Um not admirable, maybe not great, whatever. But there's all sorts, you know, you may not admire the person, for it, but, you know, we're just people. People make mistakes. That's the world we navigate. And but I think that I think that also there is usually something shifting around it. You know, so you, we like to think it's just somebody, you know, does the wrong thing. But mm -hmm. usually behind it, there is a relate. you know, it's often a, a reach out for independence. It's a reach out for um maybe more sex, maybe it's a reach out for more satisfaction. That was always the old style thing. Oh, somebody's not getting what they need at home. You know, well, that's, that's, it's a much bigger picture than that. I often think it's also, is somebody reaching out for that sort of part of themselves that they feel has, has sort of died in the relationship uh, or is dying. And, um, and those kinds of situations, they can be fixed because maybe the person still does love and want the relationship that they're in but this act of of sexual infidelity has in some way put words on or or acted out what should have been spoken out and i suppose that's where i come in often is in drawing that together and i've certainly seen that many times and i've seen it successfully dealt with mm. trust obviously can be difficult afterwards but um but good couples can work that out you know yeah, I think now if it's a 20 year affair, we're talking about a different level. So there's a few levels there. Mm -hmm. um, on your podcast, there's a, there a fascinating story. You were you were treating or working with a man who was seeing um, an escort at lunchtime. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, amazing. Yeah. Right. Um, and it was I mean, almost every lunchtime. So five days a week he's in yeah. the office. That is 
what what do you think is how prevalent is sex addiction? Would you would you describe that to sex addiction, or is there something else going on there? Yeah, I think um, I I thought it was very interesting and funny. I just did a podcast yesterday. We talked a lot about addiction in relationships, and um, sex addiction was one of them. And uh, I would say there's there's often something else going on, but there's sometimes not something else going on. But in this instance, um, and the insight that I, I got, because we're all learning all the time, uh, the insight that I, I got was that uh, that for this man, he, possibly there was a slight, you know, his early sexualization might have impacted a little, mm. but also, but also he was, he found it hard to enter his own sort of, if you like, desire, and while having to think about somebody else at the same time. And so he wasn't really able to be in relationship and be very sexual. It was slightly, so he could only see his wife sort of in a, in a kind of a, um, not in a non-sexual way, but it, he, he couldn't really enjoy it fully without being able to abandon her, you know? And I think what, what, what the sex worker in this incident uh, instance gave is the, the exclusivity and the opportunity for him to just completely focus on himself so there was a complete selfishness factor to it if you, you but i'm not saying that in a negative way mm. but a selfishness factor which i think what he was trying to accommodate in himself and in some way not break his marriage up at the same time so there was a kind of and and then it grew to an addiction that's it grew to an addiction because you know because of course you know sex like many other things brings up all these endorphins in us and they bring up these the oxytocin as we mentioned there is a, mm -hmm. a kind of a dopamine lift as well so there's a kind of a, a a mood lift to it and so you can that's where the addiction can come in there mm -hmm. can be a, a a kind of a physiologically addictive factor to it as well and can so, you can you work with clients and i know what percentage are male by the way and what percentage are female in your Kind of 50-50, because I was um, I was just mentioning that to you uh, at the outset. I think it just comes from the fact that I, I always worked in the corporate world in my mm. in my sort of practice. I used to have contracts with various companies, and a lot of them were male, actually male-dominated companies. And maybe maybe that, uh, that, together with the couple work, kind of has always given me, and maybe it was the Seven Brothers as well, of course, but uh, it's always given me a very, I have a very even sort of sense about men. And um, also I'm a mother to a son. And I think you, uh, who's sort of 33 now, and I think it gives you, you, you do need to understand the male world. The male world, you know, the female perspective on the male world isn't often that clear. And I always feel very much that men have different challenges. Men have a, men have a, you know, when they talk about when women get married, when men get married, I mean, my experience is men get married when they're ready. You know, men commit when they're ready. It's it's not about who they, you know, of course, it's about who they meet eventually. But in reality, it's more about timing mm. than the who. It's it's like a click for men. They, they just click and they kind of go, it's time for me to settle down. Boom. Could be three, three weeks later, they meet there and they get serious about that problem. That's how it works. Women, it's not the same. How is it different for women? I think women are, women in some ways are primed. We're primed to be ready earlier. I think men, remember, men are also, they want to be, and again, this is the evolutionary thing. Men want to be 
capable of their own independence. They want to be able to provide. They want to be able to look after a woman if if that woman is with him and to be able to provide the kind of in, inside themselves without even articulating it. That's mm. what they're trying to do. And when the money comes in and they realize they've got the house, they've got the mortgage in order, you know, well, what's the next thing? Boom. That's how it happens. But for women, on the other hand, they're, you know, we're at an evolutionary level. We're mm. ready. Mm. We're ready very early. And uh, now some women are taught and we're, we're in Ireland seeing it. We're, we're taught to build career first you know, um, and and that and, be you know, to stay in education. That is deferred women's desire, I think, to settle, which I think is a good thing, I have to say, um, I, you know, because I think then you have mature. I know we can talk about all the having babies early and all that malarkey. But, you know, in reality, I think it makes mature women make good mothers, good, happier lives, build a better lives for themselves, for their children, for their families, all of that. So, yeah, I, I see it as a plus. Um. So. Pornography in clinical practice, right? Are you finding and that the people are presenting and men in particular say are presenting and pornography is having a significant negative effect on their relationships and their sex lives? What would your perspective be there? Um, I've had less men coming with that issue, I have to say, as although I think I think it is an issue for younger men. Maybe I, I see little less of the cohort which this might impact, which might be more in the 20s mm. or in the sort of 18, I would think 18 to 26, that kind of grouping. So I might see less there, but I absolutely would be confident that it is warping their sense of of sex, their sense of connection, what it's about. And what I do definitely see is the impact on women, that they're, I think they, they feel an obligation to deliver something in um, that really they don't have the instinct for. Um, and I think it's, it is, I think it does warp the sexual, the whole sexual encounter. Mm. Now, remember, I deal a lot with people in the thirties plus mm. that'd be, you know, mostly. And, um, and I would see it less so there. I think people kind of get through it in their 20s. They they kind of realize, oh, you know, this is kind of this is a put on situation. And uh, and they begin to see through that real life isn't like that. But it's it is something else. But I, I do see a damaging impact of of porn. We're not going to take it away, obviously, you know, but I I honestly feel that it is damaging. For people's but even for the desensitizing you know and for what people are anticipating and of course most of all for the early sexualization of it i mean we look at this imprint of sexualization psychologically we always look back to see what were your early sexual experiences i mean if anybody has been abused or early you know you know just touched intruded upon at a young age but in a sexual way it's a very strong template laid down for desire and um and a very confusing one and often of course the wrong one so if you do that if you think of it that way and the first thing that really sexually excited a girl or a boy was looking at something you know as introduced in porn it's quite confusing and it lays a template which can be hard removed I often think if you think of it in, in sexual terms, you know, there is a very strong instinct in us all to repeat. You know, people, if you think about, just think about that in the sexual sense that, that there is a tendency to kind of know that works 
and that was good Mm. and go right back there so it's just that amplified but but if you take that from the very earliest that's what's going on so we are warping something that's really important i think in life yeah and uh we do have to be careful of it yeah and the, the later it can be introduced and the more controlled the better obviously the more adult the mind the lesser the issue but for the malleable developing evolving mind yeah i think it's it's really toxic I think for, as for all of us that are parents, the uh, it is the, the I suppose one of the biggest is a huge concern um, when you introduce technology and how you do that and and the implications of of doing that. But mm-hmm. okay, so um, what's your perspective on friends with benefits, the friends with benefits phenomenon, and what yeah. they call situationships? Situationships, yeah. Um, I think it's handy. I think it's um, easy. Mm. Um, there may be a time when it's kind of fine and okay and good. Don't see anything wrong with it in that sense. Mm. But I think I think it does often go a little awry because um, what might be okay and, and for some it might be fine. But but it does it is open to misunderstanding. It is also it's slightly defying gravity, isn't it? That uh, the the more you have the more you have sex, the closer we know it brings you in some sense oxytocin so, and all the yes bonding. yeah so where's all that going then you know um I, I meet a lot of women who are in situationships and um and i would say they are kidding themselves um largely they are they are saying you know this is what i want and and it's fine and it works but actually it's just deferring what they do want they just have maybe given up for a while on what they want and that's okay too that's okay. Sometimes you need a breather from trying. Sometimes you don't need to be going forward, forward all the time in life. But I think you have to be very careful because people get very, very mixed up. They're getting involved and not meaning to get involved. And somebody, I think, often gets hurt. That's that's my experience of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a power differential always. And there's, a, there's an attraction differential. Somebody's always yeah. more attracted to somebody else. Plus, in a situation, there's no momentum. It's no, You're going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, so lastly, if you had one piece of advice for people looking to improve their sex lives in their relationship, it's a five-year tenure. It's kind yes. of on the wane a little bit. We know we've established now how important it is. Sure. Uh, what would your advice, what would your advice be? Five or 10 year relationship. A I would say long-term, yeah. Significant long-term relationship. I, I think I really definitely would say never let sex slide off the agenda you know i think that's something that does happen Mm. i would say that you should you should always sort of factor it in always create space for it and in truth as a couple you have to create a time out you know it's not about technique it's about time for each other and and bringing something new in all of the time that you do not just sexually but in your life you've got Mm. to build you, life has to stay interesting. It's very, it's quite interesting how people let things become very plateaued. Now, I know children can do that because, you know, you're home every night, you're stuck with the kids, they're in bed at eight and you have to, you know, watch telly. There's all of that kind of thing. But but you can, you know, you don't take your eye off what's important. Um, if there was one other thing I suppose I would often say to people is talk about, come back to the good times, you know, talk about it, think about it. Um, what worked best when were we closest you know 
we create it a little bit. I also, I mean, we all know role playing is kind of good, but I, it's not always necessary. Certainly, in a, you know, in a fiber, nothing wrong with it if, it if it's what works for you. But I really think that what goes wrong is people don't continue the effort. And the other thing is that even if you don't feel like having sex in the female sense, men generally do mostly feel like having sex. It is important to kind of just work with it. In other words, you know, do, you know, have sex, have sex. I don't mean any way like offer it up kind of thing, but rather see that the important thing is, is rather like, as they say, going to the gym, you don't always feel like it, but you feel pretty good after. Um, yeah, you made an interesting point there in terms of the sex drive and that men are generally always ready for sex. Reasonably ready. Yeah. I think probably, yeah, and, and both both people in the relationship need to understand, I suppose, that there is that male drive, there is, and men need to understand where women are coming from as well. And, and we're different, yeah. And yeah. we're different and that's fine. But not one better than the other, which I think is often, you know, I do, I do find men are put down a little bit for um for that almost like you know that um you know that it's this animalistic kind of you know guy thing you know it's not really we're just different we're just different and uh, and i think i see great strengths in the male sort of way the way they can compartmentalize the way they're you know that there's great psychological strengths in men that i think are i think they're they're downgraded to be honest with you in in our world today you know we see this around you know, fatherhood, I mentioned that to you at one point, mm. fatherhood that, I mean, fathers play an enormous part in uh, the development of the individual in terms of how they love, the conditional way that they love children, the way they encourage risk in children, they encourage a risky kind of play, not dangerous, just risky. They also tend to be skill-based, they kind of upskill their children. And so we've loads of evidence around that. So I'm a real, you know, of course, I love women and I am a woman and I know what we have that is quite special. But we have weaknesses to our strengths. You know, every 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 sort of all the intuitiveness that women have, mm. that's very good because we tend to we're very good for tending to the flock, tending to the group, tending to the child. Often, not every one of us, but, you know, often. But the underside of that is that we can overtend to detail. Men on the other side have the strength of compartmentalizing, la la la, like I mentioned there. And the underside of that is that they can be a bit kind of fixers, you know, they're a bit too fixy in the relationship. You know, they're not inclined to listen to the to the all the detail that women maybe need to mention to understand what's going on for them. So there's many things like that, I suppose, around communication. But uh, yeah, as you can probably see, I'm very 50 50. Mm. Dr. Warren Farrell has, a, has done a lot of great work on this and his book. He, he, he spoke about it, The Boy Crisis. Um, he has a book called The Boy Crisis, mm -hmm. uh, Fatherless and the Absence of Fathers. And he calls it um, Dad Deprivation. Yeah. And it's, had, it's having a massive significant, it's related to parental alienation. It's having a massive yes. societal impact in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I suspect it's on its way. It's in the post. Yeah. Oh, I, I think so. Funny, I, I did uh, many years ago, I did a, a, something that I hoped I'd get out long before the podcasting time on fatherhood and on exactly that, because boys do need the male thinking around them. It's, just, it's not that women we can provide very well and men can provide. Men can do the tending as well. Remember, there's lots of single fathers who do a fabulous job on the caring and the tending right from the word go. So 
Mm. We're not, and it's not, a, it's not anymore as we know a he, she thing. You mm. know, it's really the the person who fosters that first year of life is is really the the carer, if you think of it in that way. You know, it can be the mother, the father, or whatever. The child needs that constant one for for that time that becomes the more important kind of dynamic but after that the dynamic of three becomes a very important dynamic i mean i always see it as it represents the introduction of the world the introduction of what is beyond the bonded mother child set you know sort of dyad and so it's really important that that gets introduced to the child and sometimes in the absence of fathers that triangularization just doesn't happen and so it the, the you see these then young men who are very emotional and very caught in the emotional and um and don't feel strong in the in in all these other scenarios of life where where it's important to be the fixer and the sorter and the compartmentalizer and they've lost those skills because they never were really introduced to them or or never not so much introduced to them as much as they were parts of themselves that never saw the light of day last question where can people find yes. you stephanie oh okay um i am on uh instagram stephanie tough love um and uh, i have a website stephanieregan.ie and they can send me an email there and you've got a brilliant podcast called tough tough love, love with a uh, matchmaker Mairead lockman and i and we have really enjoyed doing that I've checked it out. I'll put a link to it in the description box for this for this conversation. Um, Thank it's you. fantastic. Thanks Thank so you much. so much, Stephanie. Thank you, Connor. It's lovely.